When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Inside. In each episode, we'll talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Nikki Garg. Nikki is the co-founder of The Good Pea Company, producing plant-based milk with the dual aims of being good for you and also good for the planet. So I think that's the second plant-based milk company we've actually had on the show. Some years ago, we actually welcomed the marketing director of Oakley. Nikki this time is producing pea-based milks rather than oat-based milks. So Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Now, the first question people are going to ask is, how on earth do you get milk from peas? And I guess we should point out that you're not talking about the standard green variety of pea that you find in, for example, mushy peas or which you find in you know, the conventional supermarket. It's a different kind of pea. Is that right? Yes, you're absolutely right. So uh, it's not the green variety, but actually the yellow split pea, which is the legume. Uh, and when we started out our mission to make a positive change in the world, it was at the start of the pandemic. And we wanted to make a, a really positive impact on people's health and the planet. And we realized that the biggest way that we could do that was to make a plant-based product. Because statistically, we know that a plant-based diet is the single biggest way to reduce our carbon footprint. My husband also has a dairy allergy, and actually 68% of the world is lactose intolerant to some degree. And so that's why we focused on the plant milk sector. And we thought if you can get milk from oats, nuts, rice, uh, soybeans, then why not yellow split peas? And it was, it was really important to us, actually, that we created something that was nutritious and tasty, as well as sustainable and long life. And we wanted to be as inclusive as possible. So although we are a vegan product, we're not just here for vegans we're absolutely here for everyone and even though milk is not as sexy I guess as, as say something like chocolate there is something really nostalgic about drinking milk as children and most of us have quite fond memories of milk and cookies um, but it's quite tainted now that we know dairy is one of the biggest contributors of carbon emission it actually has double the impact of aviation whereas pea milk has up to 86 percent less carbon emissions than dairy and so with the good pico i guess we're saying you can have your milk and cookies and feel good about it so i understand also that the plants themselves are actually quite beneficial to the environment because they kind of require less in the way of fertilization or artificial fertilizer because they can actually extract nitrogen from the atmosphere is that right 
That's correct, yes. Um, at the beginning of our journey, something that was quite a key contributor in us choosing yellow split peas as our hero in- ingredient was me coming across a TED talk by Julia Albrecht called How Peas Will Save the Planet. And in that, we discovered that field peas, so whether they're green, yellow or dried peas, they have this uh, capability of taking nitrogen from the air and using a bacterial in the soil called rhizobia. Uh, And that allows it to convert it into a usable form for crops to grow. And therefore, you you don't require any artificial nitrogen fertilisers, which in turn keeps our lakes and oceans cleaner. So I guess that was a bit of a eureka moment for me. And I I remember calling my friend uh, who was going through a similar journey towards veganism at the time and kind of rather cheesily said, you know, do you want to help me save the world? And uh, we became business partners, and I guess the rest is history. Did you become a vegan, in fact? Uh, it was during the first lockdown, so 2020, and I, historically, my whole life I had eaten meat quite a lot, and I hadn't really thought about it too much. But marrying my husband, he, who's always been vegetarian, I, I was starting to think about it a little bit more, and also a little bit out of laziness, um, not wanting to have to cook two meals every day. I was probably eating more vegetarian meals over the years. And then during the first lockdown, I think I became quite philosophical. I think like a lot of people did about, you know, why COVID was happening and, um, you know, have we caused this? What kind of impact are we having on, on the earth, on animals? And I actually watched Game Changers at a, a similar time. And I kind of realized actually I think veganism is for me and I want to try to live by you know a plant-based diet and um, yeah just kind of made the switch overnight really. And the really funny thing about plant-based milks is because they've they've actually emerged on the shelves relatively recently and it's fair to say oat milk only does date back to about 1990 I think it was invented at the University of Lund uh, by a professor there. The other forms of plant-based milk for example, almond milk, soy milk actually date back to the 13th century, or at least that those are the, they're probably much older than that, but those are the first written references to them. I think there's a mention of, um, if I'm right, almond milk in the form of curry, which is F-O-R-M-E and C-U-R-Y, which I think might be the earliest cookbook in the English language. It was produced by, I think, uh, chefs at the court of Richard II. And this came as an absolute kind of revelation to me that these plant-based milks are not a newfangled thing. Uh, They're actually extremely old. But on the other hand, one thing you will point out is you think there is an environmental problem with almond milk in terms of water consumption. There is, yeah. I mean... There is there's quite a few environmental concerns with the, a lot of the milks. And, and by the way, we're a huge fan of plant milks in general in the sense that, you know, what they're contributing to the to the plant based industry and, and plant milks will always be better than dairy in terms of sustainability um, anyway. But but if we kind of look at them at a little bit closely, then almond milks are they, they have a, a lot of water consumption. So it actually takes 1.1 gallons of water to grow a single almond, um, which is huge. Um, rice milk is quite similar. And then, you know, from the kind of oat milk and coconut milks and things like that uh, they're not too bad in terms of sustainability but from a nutritional point of view you'll often find oat milks they won't they won't have very much protein in them they might be quite high in uh, carbohydrates and sugar and 
coconut milks can be quite high in saturated fat as well. So it's kind of getting the balance between being really sustainable and nutritious. And the protein content is what really distinguishes the yellow pea, I suppose. Now that's very, uh, and, and of course, I suppose that's more important because the danger of veganism is you, or I don't need the danger of vegetarianism, is that your diet ends up a bit carb heavy or cheese heavy in the case of vegetarians, I suppose. So anything that kind of counterbalances that is useful. Would you say that as a vegan, you do need to kind of meal plan, that it's not something you can do simply by kind of, uh, you know, cutting out meat and dairy from your diet? And then go, you know, going as the mood takes you. Does it require some degree of kind of food balancing or supplements or something of that kind? I think um, it, we've moved so far forward from kind of the old myth of vegans sort of just live on on salads and lettuce leaves. Um, there is there are so many alternatives out there now, and a lot of them are fortified with the things that you will get mainly from animal products. For example, vitamin B twelve. Having said that, you know, there are so many things that you nutrients that you get from plants, which are beneficial more so than uh, animal products. But yes, I, I do think, you know, I think everybody should meal plan to whether, you know, whatever kind of diet you adhere to. Um, but with veganism, you probably have to take a little bit of extra care in terms of making sure that you do get that B12 in your diet and iron and, and the protein. But there are so so many um, natural things as well in a vegan diet, you know, legumes, beans, lentils, and actually the yellow split pea. I mean, I, I come from an Asian background. And so we've always known it, known to use it in curries and in our dolls. And that's, that's always a, a staple in an Indian household, because it's very high in protein, and um, it gives you that kind of balanced diet. So it wasn't something that was alien to us, but it was just using that. And instead of making a curry, I guess, milking it and, and turning it into something else that we could use that was, you know, very, very nutritious. And all of our protein actually comes from the pea. We, ha we haven't had to add anything into our product. So each carton of our original skew, which is one liter, has 34 grams of protein in it, which is unrivaled um, on the market at the moment. And it actually has 50% more calcium than cow's milk. So, you know, it's interesting where a lot of people will say, well, if you cut out your, you know, your milk, your cow's milk, then where will you get your calcium from? Well, actually, you're getting more from drinking our milk, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, and we've also fortified it with B12, iodine, uh, which is very important for brain function, and vitamin D as well. And I think probably most of the UK is deficient in vitamin D, so it's very important to add that in. I think you get your peas from Belgium, actually, although they're grown very extensively in Asia. You choose to get them from nearby in, in Belgium. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, it, it would be a lot cheaper for us actually to, you know, get the peas from China, or even Canada. But uh, we've chosen to go with Belgium. They produce a real um, pure pea protein isolate um, that gives us that high level of protein, and it's as close to home as we could find at this stage. And so we're just trying to minimise, you know, supply uh, chain impact as much as possible. Um, and we also use uh, a supplier that um, chooses farmers that are really close to their production sites. Um, the pea processing site as well consumes 39% of self-produced drinking water. Um, and we've got and we've taken it 
you know, throughout every part of the journey, we've really tried to think about the environment, you know, right through to packaging as well. We use a packaging that is 100% recyclable. Um, our milks are long life. So hopefully that will cause less wastage as well. So yours is an interesting case of, of a lockdown inspired entrepreneurial idea. You were working in finance before, is that right? I was, yes. I spent the last 12 years in banking and finance. So it was really quite a career change. Um, But I feel, I think for the first time in my career that I'm doing something really meaningful and that I can look back and say, well, I I did something that can help future generations, um, you know, both from a a kind of planet-friendly point of view and also from a nutritional point of view. And also, you know, being inclusive was very important to me, seeing my husband struggle with his dairy allergy and having to constantly check the back of packs and if he's going to restaurants, you know, really making sure there's no dairy and things um but but then missing out on the nutrients you know that and looking into that further now having had children you know I came to realize that actually two children out of every classroom in the UK have allergies and a lot of them are dairy and so it it kind of felt very unfair to me that because you can't eat something that you should have to sacrifice on on the nutrients Worldwide, actually, the proportion of people who are lactose intolerant includes quite a large proportion of the Asian population, if that's right, I think. I don't know um, the kind of breakdowns per continent. I know it's 68% of the world is lactose intolerant to some degree. So some will feel it as maybe mild bloating, others will get more severe reactions to it. But it kind of makes you think that you know, drinking cow's milk is probably not very natural. We probably shouldn't be drinking another mammal's milk. It's very recent evolutionarily, because I think it was something like a mutation in 25,000 years ago in India, which they think then spread, which is the ability for humans to digest milk above early childhood age, I think. And if you can think about it, in a, in a sparser environment, Uh, there would have been an advantage to getting children to move on from the breast at a certain age, possibly. But it's certainly, you know, in terms of the time span of human evolution, it's kind of almost a last minute adaptation. Uh, The ability to digest uh, cow's milk therefore came with it, I think. But um, obviously, you know, I take your point that actually the idea that milk is a natural food is perhaps one that isn't quite as safe as we like to think. When you got started, you must have done all your research under lockdown conditions, kind of contacting suppliers, packaging, etc. We were still under lockdown and you were effectively doing that remotely, uh, finding yes, out. yeah. And are you the first pea-based milk provider in Britain, at least? I know in Asia it's got a longer history. No, we're not. We're not the first. Um, however, our USPs are really around nutrition. So we're unrivaled in terms of the level of protein that we have in our milks and, you know, just our supply chain. And also, and I know this is very subjective, but, you know, we feel that we've got a superior taste as well, um, which is quite important. I think when you're picking something, especially if you've been used to drinking cow's milk, you know, your whole life and you're looking for something that is substituting, you're trying to make all the, the the right decisions for the environment etc but you've got to enjoy your food and um and choose something you can really work with and i think you know the pea protein market is vastly growing and i think there's there's space for you know everyone it's set to be at 178 million over the next five years um, in terms of the global pea protein market and so i think there are lots of oat milks out there lots of different brands um there are a couple of different 
pea protein milks out there at the moment. And I think we'll probably see a lot more of that, not just um, in drinks, but also in uh, food as well. We already get pea protein burgers and sausages and things like that. And I think we'll just see that range grow and grow and grow because of all the benefits that you that you can get from the peas. It seems to me that they're kind of, yeah, an overlooked plant. I mean, obviously we eat peas. There's nothing that weird about that. But the versatility of that particular plant seems to have been sort of strangely lost to us, uh, particularly given the protein content you mentioned. So I'm very grateful for you for kind of reviving interest. Um, How did you get started? In terms of looking at marketing and distribution, what were your first thoughts? What was your natural first approach to where you sold it first and how you promoted it? It was a really, it's a really interesting journey, actually, because uh, when we first started, we did face quite a lot of challenges. Personally, uh, having like common startup challenges and also having, you know, the pandemic having its own challenges as well. So initially, Sue and I, um, my co-founder, we, neither of us come from a food and beverage market. And so, you know, we found ourselves in this situation where we had this sort of passion project and we wanted to convert it into a serious product a disruptor on the market and that came with quite a lot of challenges itself because at every part of the journey there was a lot of unknowns as a real lack of experience and quite often imposter syndrome and we were very green um excuse the pun but um and so you know on the on the technical side of things as well uh, we had to very quickly surround ourselves with people who could fill our knowledge gaps and that we could trust explicitly. And then, of course, you have the kind of common challenges that most startups face, which is essentially getting the business off the ground, gaining traction, boosting brand awareness, working you know, on the right marketing strategy and, and who we wanted to um, supply to and how we wanted to distribute. Um, and then we had the pandemic, which brought its own challenges. So Normally, when you're, you know, you're formulating a new recipe, you'd be able to go to a lab and spend, say, a day there. And by the end of the day, you've you've come up with lots of different variations of that product and you decide this is the one. Whereas for us, because it was locked down and the labs were, you know, shut for long periods of time, we were having to create a recipe, wait for it to be posted to us, try it, go back with a change and do that, which probably delayed us for about six to eight months, actually, in our process. So it kind of really required um, a lot of belief in our product and determination at every hurdle. But Sue and I are very, every time we come up with a problem, we think, well, where there's a will, there's a way. and, And we always find one. And so through a lot of perseverance and um, leaning on on people that are really good at what they do, we kind of thought, well, initially, I think, you know, the best thing for us to do is really focus on our USPs and what is different in a market that is highly competitive. As you say, oat milks and, and almond milks are still hugely popular in the UK. And so we had to really think about how we were different and get that message across in our marketing um, from a nutritional point of view, from a sustainability point of view, and then think about who we wanted to supply to. And we've kind of gone with health and fitness centers that seemed very um, appropriate for what we were doing, you know, hotels that are really focused on um, healthy living, plant-based living. And also we are speaking now to kind of the next generation students um, who want to you know, incorporate more of a plant-based lifestyle 
you know, in and around London predominantly at the moment, and also retailers that are kind of on the on the higher end at the moment in terms of quite luxurious retailers that really understand, you know, what we're doing and ena- enable us to get our message out there. Um, and, but we, you know, our, our end goal really is to be as accessible as possible to as many people. So we would love to continue our journey and, and expand into as many retailers as possible and um, across Europe, really. It's not a bad idea from a branding point of view, actually, to start with high end. I understand you just signed a deal with one prestigious London department store, which we can't name. Um, but it's not a bad idea to be first distributed through those before you go more mainstream, because it sends a kind of brand message, I think. You know, people look to those stores to some extent for high quality, for their curation of high quality um, and innovative products. And so launching there, in a sense, does double duty. It not only gets you sales, but it kind of does a positioning job as well, which I think is useful. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I think you've been fortunate or, or it's very, very intelligent in that approach to starting with sort of select and niche retailers. And then I suppose the dream is wider distribution down the line. You do have a website and sell direct, but I mean, my hunch would be, I mean, there will be a group of people who order direct, but it, it, the mainstream physical distribution is still the thing for most liquid products, I would argue. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you, you can order. We do we do have people that um, are very loyal to us and they've set up a subscription on, on our website. But yes, I think, you know, when you're doing your grocery shopping and you're in the supermarket or using an online order, I think most people like to just, it's, it's a lot more convenient to be able to order all from one place, isn't it? So essentially, yes, we are looking to expand and um, we're having some really positive conversations with a few retailers at the moment. So um, yeah, watch this space. I mean, obviously, coffee shops would be another market. From what I remember from my own experiments, it works very well in coffee, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so we do have a barista version at the moment. We have the two skews. So the uh, original, uh, which I mentioned, has all the fortifications. And then we've got the barista, which is the one you tried, um, Rory. And that one is specifically for teas and coffees because a lot of the plant milks out there at the moment tend to split in coffees because coffee is very acidic. And that's not the most attractive thing when you're drinking um, coffee. And so we really focused on that to create something that froths really well. Um, And we actually tried it with um, various different professional baristas across London. And they were hugely impressed and said, our milk's actually the closest plant milk to frothing uh, similarly to cow's milk. And so we were quite pleased with that. And so we do have that. And we are, again, in talks with a few coffee shops. We are in uh, a couple of places, independents at the moment. And yeah, it would be absolutely fantastic if we could get more coffee shops on our journey with us as well. It's also perfect because I think the people who are either lactose free or, or indeed vegan are probably still looking for another alternative to the standard sort of triad. I guess the standard triad is soy, oat, almond or coconut, I guess, is the fourth one, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Rice milk seems to have slightly disappeared. I used to buy a rice milk called Rice Dream about 10 years ago. I mean, the one headwind you face, I suppose, which the dairy industry also faces is that it's less common now for people to drink milk as a drink in a glass. And also, I suppose, breakfast cereal consumption, which was always the other great, you know, driver of milk consumption, seems to be a little bit in decline. You know, the bog standard nature of kind of breakfast cereal as the staple of your breakfast 
doesn't seem to be the, so there is a little bit of a headwind around milk as a wider category is that fair yeah, I, I think uh, what people are doing is using it in different ways. So I think like, at the moment, overnight oats are just hugely popular, aren't they? And so, um, you know, our milk works great in that. You can really substitute it for anything that you would with normal milk, whether it's, you know, teas, coffees or bechamel sauces for your pasta um, or coconut curries or whatever, you know, whatever you want to, to do with it, you really can swap it out. Um, and I think, you know, yes, people are drinking it less by the glass. I think children still do. And our, our original is very popular with children. Often um, when we go to markets and exhibitions and we ha- we do a lot of sampling, we always have children asking for more, which is great. And and my, and my kids do. My kids will just have it by the glass and keep asking for more, which is good. Yeah, let me vouch for this. I've tried the product and I think it is actually really delicious, both on its own and, as you said, the barista product works disproportionately well, I think, in uh, uh, in tea and coffee as a substitute. Because my wife is, well, or claims to be, lactose intolerant. And she kind of splits between lacto-free milk, the Arla product, and some plant-based milk tends to have plant-based milk in coffee shops because they don't offer lacto-free milk. And I think you have absolutely um, happened on something significant. Uh, The useful thing also about having the barista product is that people, I think, instinctively would think a pea-based milk would work less well in coffee. And so actually specifically naming a product as a barista product overcomes that kind of natural assumption. And of course, the other thing we shouldn't forget, which is one of my other reasons for buying plant-based milk as someone who's neither vegan nor lactose intolerant, is shelf life. So it doesn't need to be refrigerated, does it? In fact, it might be a good idea to get supermarkets to stock it in the fridge simply because there's a quality association you know we tend to think things that aren't in the fridge long life milk for example is kind of rubbish i mean that was the famous thing with sunny delight that uh, drink that png created which is they demanded it was sold in the fridge even though to be honest it required no refrigeration at all but you do have a, you, there's a food waste message there i think i mean obviously you know with once open you do have to consume it within what six days seven days or something like that i suppose yeah i mean it will probably last until seven days we've put um you know five days on the packaging just to be safe but uh, before you open it yes it can be stored just in ambient temperatures you can just put it in your pantry you can stock up they're quite kind of slick tall cartons as well so they don't take up a lot of space and you know from manufacturing dates the um the shelf life is 12 months as well so yeah you know another thing to really help uh you know with wastage and 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 again it was something that was quite um, poignant you know starting in the pandemic and everybody was rushing out to stock up on you know you know toilet rolls and pasta and this and that and it was one of those things to say well you know milk is one of those everyday items that you really need and so if there is ever a shortage you kind of you know it's quite useful to have some long life milk you know that is nutritious um you know low in wastage um super sustainable that that you have just stored uh, somewhere in your house Normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Do you do any advertising? I mean, whether online or off? We use social channels quite a lot at the moment. So, you know, Instagram is proving quite good for us. We, we're, we're building a, a really organic following via that um, and Facebook as well. And really, we've, we've had quite a lot of success with word of mouth, although, you know, that, that is quite a long process. But yes, but they're the kind of main things we've been focusing on. It's helped in part that the vegan community are a kind of tribe who will look to help each other out, I suppose, at this current moment. You know, I always think there's a moment in the development of certain practices or beliefs where the group is unusually cooperative and collaborative. It's a bit like that. Electric cars are like that at this stage. They're rare enough where people feel that they're part of a, the electric car tribe and they will automatically be fairly civil and helpful towards other people. I always worry, you know, what will behaviour at charging stations be like when it's no longer a tribe? I don't quite know. But I think you are helped by that in terms of just word of mouth and social channels. Yeah, I think the vegan community is huge for us, um, and also the allergy community as well, because, you know, whenever someone stumbles across um, a product that is you know, doesn't contain the the top 14 allergens. It's quite rare. There's more and more um, great um, brands that are emerging now that have that, but it's it just means that it's safer for more people to drink and especially kind of young families as well where people are looking for for milks that their children can um, drink and still get the nutrients that other children in the classroom or nursery are drinking. Um, so that's been hugely beneficial for us. And, we, and we've been exhibiting at you know trade shows and things as well. So we did uh, the London Excel, the B show in July, and we're about to do the Veg Fest in London Olympia in November, actually a couple of weeks away. And so, again, you know, people are always pleasantly surprised by the taste because I think you're right when people initially you know see pea milk they think of the vegetable and they think is is it going to taste like peas is it going to taste quite earthy um but I, I i'm quite proud of what we've what we've done with it and um it's always nice to get that reaction that pleasant reaction to think oh this this is actually very different to what i thought and i really love this so 
Well, that's fun. And you're also helped, I suppose, because there are, they, I mean, this is a really extraordinary time for food tech. And that, by, by what I mean food tech, I, I mean both foods themselves, things like, for example, uh, meat substitutes, uh, where there seems to be in a kind of massive forward leap in the quality of kind of a veggie burger over the last five years. But also there's this kind of revolution going on in the distribution of food in that you have the gustos and the hollow freshes coming in, which might be a potential distribution mechanism for you, of course. You know, if they've got spare space in the box, you've also got these kind of restaurants that are effectively creating kind of Michelin-starred meals almost and delivering them overnight. The pandemic undoubtedly, I think it was going to happen anyway, if I'm being honest about it. But what, you know, it was rather like video conferencing uh, or the QR code. The pandemic massively accelerated behavioral change and resulting innovation in terms of how people cook and eat and prepare food and also how they buy it. So, I mean, a cardo would be another distribution opportunity for you, I guess. Hundred percent. Yeah, all of all of those things are, are things that we've considered, and we're in you know conversation with a lot of those people um, at the moment. And um, yeah, there is so much opportunity. I think people are really looking for something that that, and, and we kind of fit the bill in terms of just being really convenient, just being on their doorstep, and kind of being long life as well. There's a there's a really great vegan meal kit that's come out as well called Grubby. And we're working quite closely with them. So a lot of their customers have either have or will be in the next few days receiving um, samples of our milk in their packages as well. Um, and they're essentially the, the, the kind of plant, fully plant-based version of HelloFresh um, and Gusto. So, you know, th- there's lots of opportunities and lots of, we, we're, we're a very collaborative brand. And so th- there's lots of opportunity for us to, to continue working with all these, these other great brands as well and kind of really pushing our message out. Yeah, I mean, I'll echo a message for all the listeners here, which I entirely agree um, with Mark Ritson, which is that brand partnerships are ridiculously underexplored. And I always used to get a bit annoyed by this because you'd occasionally hear, I think advertising agencies didn't like brand partnerships because, of course, they were a way of obviating the need for advertising to some degree. But you'd often get this daft phrase, which is, oh, I don't like brand partnerships, they dilute your brand which, as I said, is a bit like saying that having friends dilutes your personality. You know, I don't think people's minds work like that at all. I think they're highly complementary and symbiotic when they're done. Obviously, they have to be done well and they can't be entirely irrelevant. But I think those kind of symbiotic brand partnerships can actually literally be a case of one plus one equals three. And of course, cost remarkably little. So you both end up benefiting, essentially, from something which is generally comparatively inexpensive. So, I mean, the more of those you'd look for, I mean, the better. I wouldn't rule out conventional advertising. I mean, get the distribution first, obviously. You have to reach, you know, distribution, some level of distribution before I think mainstream advertising will pay, unless you're using the advertising to secure the distribution, of course. But um, I certainly wouldn't rule that out. I think there is a kind of efficiency-effectiveness trade-off here, which is that a lot of people have learned that you can efficiently at some level, promote yourself using online media and social media. And so you should. I'm not disputing that for a second. But sometimes I think uh, you have to accept that to reach the kind of, you know, uh, relevant scale and also to discover target audiences you don't anticipate in advance. There is a value to mass bought media. And I think we've slightly lost sight of that, that, you know, fundamentally, 
you know, for all the virtues of other forms of engagement, you know, mass-bought media obtains and achieves things which, you know, nothing else can. And for as long as that's still true, I think there's still a really important place for it. But I, I mean, it's a, it, it's also interesting, I think, to note just a psychological observation of mine that a lot of people who, who leave banking and finance, we've got a brewery around the corner from us, which again was founded kind of by uh, recovering bankers. And I think it's interesting that if you work in something intangible, there's a particular delight. You know, if you spent 10 or 11 years working effectively with numbers and with intangibles, there's a particular delight and satisfaction that comes from finally producing a physical product. And that must be rewarding to you. Oh, 100%. Yes. Um, and, and in my previous roles, I actually did um, work with quite a lot of business owners uh, of varying degrees, some startups, some very well established. And so, yes, I was like doing, you know, I was doing the number crunching for them. Um, but it was always fascinating to me to hear their stories, their backgrounds. And like you say, see a physical product come to life from an idea off the page. And so, you know, yeah, I absolutely think it's a it's the best decision I've made, and and I you know it's useful. There's a lot of skills that I honed over the years that have been useful in setting up this business, but I've never quite felt this kind of rewarded in in what I'm doing as I as I do now. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, uh, I mean, huge congratulations. Any plans for export? Likewise, I mean, I'd have to ask this question given your peas come from Belgium. Has Brexit affected you in any way? It did, yes, especially when we were, it was another challenge that we faced when we were formulating the recipe, actually, because at customs, we, we often had things kind of going back and forth between us and our supplier that uh, got held up and we'd, you know, have to find the right codes. And it was, um, it was quite a, a, quite a journey, to be honest, getting to the, to the recipe. But, um, you know, so far, because our manufacturer is kind of bulk buying the pea protein, not just for us, but for a few different brands, whether they use it, you know, from in a kind of drinks capacity or a food capacity and and therefore again trying to minimize that uh, supply chain impact but because of that it's a bit little bit easier for us so every time we go to production it's ready in stock it's very interesting this whole wider question of kind of pea-based protein because possibly can it be used as a kind of bulking agent in other foods I don't know, because the, the great problem with a lot of pre-prepared foods, and it's not entirely the fault of large manufacturers, is that the convenient bulking agent to use is, of course, sugar. And if there's an alternative to sugar, which is obviously, um, you know, with a lower glycemic index and more protein, I mean, that would be very, very good news indeed, beyond just drinks. The applications for this plant seem to be a bit wider. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're actually working with a vegan ice cream uh, brand, which is great. It's called Yummy Chums, um, and they use our protein to to thicken and, like you say, bulk up the ice cream. It tastes absolutely delicious, and it's actually free from the top thirteen allergens as well. And so, there's lots of different applications. I think we're really just at the tip of the iceberg with what we can do with pea protein. I think there's lots more things to come. Yeah, it's very it's a very exciting journey to be on which is your first export market of choice we actually have quite a few fans in germany and there's there's a real growing kind of vegan population um over there or uh, indeed flexitarian you know a lot of them are, are just switching out certain things and and that's our kind of 
you know, it is it's really important for me to kind of note that we're a vegan brand, but we're not just here for vegans, absolutely here for everyone. And so we're, you know, we're willing to work with lots of different people. Um, and we have, we've had quite a few kind of German tourists try our milk at, at various places and say, well, when are you coming to Germany? And so that kind of feels, and also our packaging, the head office is, is German as well. So it feels like that would be the right place to start but we would we'd love to expand um, across Europe and, and further. That'd be fantastic I suppose it's because you're a long life product it's easier to do that than it would be with conventional milks and although having said that I suppose you know you know you, you, it's not totally difficult to trade in milk but it doesn't require refrigeration in transit is that right? No it doesn't no it's just it's all ambient temperature so it's a lot easy to transport and store than normal milk so yeah again I think there's lots of opportunities um we've, we've actually had quite a bit of interest from Asia as well because they have lots of different milks there but pea is not quite made it there even though the pea protein that we use uh, you know there's a variation of it that can grow and that does grow over in in China as well so that's quite interesting but again you know I just think plant-based milks um, and just plant food in general is just growing absolutely everywhere Um, it's not just you know a UK thing or a western thing it's it's a global phenomenon and I think we're just going to see more and more of it and in the UK alone we've got one in three Britons that will choose to buy plant milk which is a huge number we've got veganuary approaching around the corner as well which I think will hit record highs and so yeah it's just a it's just a really exciting space to be in and by the way I don't know who came up with veganuary but I mean total respect to the person who came up with the idea that if you get people to do something for a month you're halfway towards getting people to do it permanently or at least regularly. You know, I think I believe fairly confidently. I, don't, I couldn't claim whether it's going to be 40 years or 50 years or most optimistically maybe, you know, 25. But I think there will come a time when most of the developed world at least is largely meat-free. I'm not sure the whole world will go be vegan, but I'm sure there'll be a time when we look back on the fact that people regularly ate dead animals in the same way that we kind of look back on things like slavery or uh, indentured servitude or whatever it may be, that we'll look back on it as kind of, you know, really pretty odd and strange. I think that will happen. What is interesting is the various different mechanisms. One friend of mine did research into this because he was always talking to either meat farmers or indeed dairy farmers who are ranting on about veganism or ranting on about vegetarianism. He said, actually, a very large part of the decline in meat consumption isn't really down to absolute religious vegetarianism. It's simply that people are eating more and more foods, e.g. pizza, which contain a pretty paltry amount of meat, where meat is a kind of garnish or a decoration. It's not the fundamental ingredient of the meal. And I think if you look at our eating habits, you know, we increasingly eat the kind of food where meat is not actually the, you know, the center point of a meal. It's, you know, it's merely a constituent of it. So that reduces meat consumption. Then, of course, the interesting thing is when you have vegans, I never anticipated. I had vegan friends at university, which bear in mind, given that was in 1986, that was really pretty rare. But it was extraordinarily difficult to be a vegan if you wanted to eat out, for example. A pizza without cheese was a kind of slightly ridiculous meal, to be absolutely honest. And now, of course, they find it much easier. But it also changes the choice architecture because you're going to find that you know, if you go and eat somewhere, there are probably going to be two vegan options. 
and they're going to be two vegetarian options. I think there was a wrong turn probably taken by veganism and to some extent vegetarianism, as described by one of my vegetarian friends, who said that there was a time in the kind of 80s and 90s where vegetarian restaurants were almost for people who didn't like food. It was so closely bound up with the health food industry that it literally was kind of, you know, here's your spinach, you know. And, of course, simple human ingenuity has started to produce things which are, uh, as you said, dairy-free or and or meat-free, which are actually perfectly tasty, enjoyable, convenient, and non-weird. Do you think there's also scope? I'm, I'm interested in insect food. They're very, very high in protein, okay? I think insects, you know, I wouldn't have the same qualms about killing insects as killing mammals. And they can also be farmed very, very environmentally friendly. Now, you may be uncomfortable with that, but it does strike me as an interesting possible development, which is that um, given that, you know, certain things, crickets, locusts, etc., in Mexico, you spice them up and they're a kind of snack. You can also powder them into flour because they're a great source of protein. You know, I've always wondered about that, whether, you know, my, my daughter, weirdly, who's vegetarian, is happy to eat bivalve. She's got some weird divide that they don't have a central nervous system. I've got another vegetarian friend who'll eat prawns, but nothing else. I think there might be an interesting case for drawing the line in interesting places as well. It's a really interesting conversation, really, um, to have. I think it's all all really boils down to personal beliefs and where that line is for you and, and the reason for you not eating a certain animal or, you know, whatever your diet may be. Um, I think vegans would probably argue that, you know, it's just not right to kill anything that's uh, living um, and it has a central nervous system, I guess. Um, yeah, but it's an, it's an, it's, it's an interesting uh, debate to have, I think. Um, honey and, used to be a dividing line for vegans, wasn't it? There were honey-eating vegans. And the argument is, although it's not an animal product, in that it doesn't come from an animal, you are exploiting the bees. And so honey, I remember being one source of argument. I've never quite seen, I have to admit, I've never quite seen the problem with eggs. Because if they're an unfertilized egg and chickens don't eat eggs. I think it's just the life cycle um, of an egg. The fact that they come from an animal, so they're deemed as an animal product, I guess. And it's also the kind of the farming that happens and the, yes. the ways that the chickens are treated to get those eggs as well. I know there's been quite a lot of undercover cameras that have gone into farms and things that have, have shown that. And so it's kind of, I think, the bigger picture and the cruelty to the animals to get there as well and veganism for me is, is a personal choice but like I say as a brand it's not something that we we kind of preach or or, or judge anyone on um, we're just here to offer an alternative it interests me as a behavioral change thing because I think what we see is progress being made not through absolutely sort of dogmatic persuasion but through a variety of different things in the ecosystem not least the quality of meat-free and plant-free food, but a whole variety of changes in behavior happening, but all effectively working in the same direction. Having one vegetarian family member effectively turns the rest of the family flexitarian, if only through laziness. And that doesn't matter. 
you know, that doesn't matter. You're still, I often say, you know, it's what you do that counts. It's not why you do it in many ways. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I think the point is, is that, you know, five, ten years ago um, and more, you know, being vegan or vegetarian, you were simply just cutting things out of dishes. And so everything was free from and you were left with, you know, whatever was left behind that was deemed vegetarian or vegan. Uh, but now having all these alternatives, you don't really feel like you're missing out. You still have alternative, um, the innovative brands out there are creating things that taste more and more like what you're used to, if, it, if that is meat or creating. Uh, in terms of milk, we actually get a lot of feedback. Uh, a lot of people don't actually like the taste of milk or the taste it leaves behind on your tongue. And so, you know, we, we never really had a that challenge in terms of, you know, we were never kind of thinking, well, we really want this to taste like milk because it's not actually a very attractive <laughs> in terms of um, taste. And so for us, it was a little bit easier in that way to kind of make our own mark um, and have something that tastes what we think is better than cow's milk. Um, but you can still substitute it in all the ways that you would normally use it for. But I think that's the important thing, having alternatives so you still feel like you you know you can enjoy all the things that you always did but just in a slightly different way that's better for your body and better for the planet you're right so actually the difference between uh, in a sense being vegan or vegetarian but certainly in my kind of youth was a compromise rather than a choice as you said it was you know, it was all about what you couldn't do. It wasn't about actually making a decision between two comparable alternatives. I think that's a really, really good insight. I mean, it's really, really useful. I'll end on this now and just say, you know, for all the people who've had their interest peaked, do give your URL by which they can order your product or indeed any shops you want to name or, or distributors you want to name who stock it. This is a business that only created in 2020. It's one of the children of lockdown. And I, I just think it's a really wonderful story. So do plug yourself to the listeners. Yeah, no, thank you very much, um, Rory. And we, yes, yeah, so I mean, our website is thegoodpico.co.uk. So, um, you know, that's where you can, uh, you know, try our products and you can sign up for subscriptions as well. So you can get, you know, really uh, a really great package there. Um, and we are in Replace London as well, which is in Westbourne Grove, really great health and wellness centre. And we're launching in a few. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market. Independent stores and, um, like you say, a uh, 
uh, a luxury kind of high-end store um, in London soon as well. So please have a look at all of our kind of our Instagram stories. Follow us on on social media. Um, we're at the Good Pico, and you'll see all the kind of latest news and stockists and uh, all the gossip that you need to know um, on there. Well, Nikki, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, and uh, more power to you. I hope you go on from strength to strength. That's all for this episode of On Brand, but the podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, just visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. This series is produced and marvelously edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then again, help us algorithmically by giving us a like. All that remains to say is look forward to connecting with you next time. And thanks for listening.